0: Well, welcome to Beer is a Conversation, hosted by Radio Brews News. We've got with us today Brendan O'Sullivan from Three Ravens. How are you going, Brendan?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks, James. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been I a long time. It has, yeah. Yeah, Pete, I know we bump into each other now and then, but um, yeah, we certainly haven't had many, many pints of beer together. And same goes with you, James. I haven't seen you for ages.
0: I don't think I've seen you since you were in a previous guise, maybe Boneyard in those days.
1: Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, that was years ago. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> having me. It's been, uh, it's been a long ride. I know um, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, probably both good and bad. Matt's not here, I think. Uh, between the two of us, we probably would have ranted on for a few hours, but yeah, it's <laughs> a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Maybe where you could start is just by um, giving us the Brendan O'Sullivan story about how you got into beer.
1: Yeah, sure. It was a very long time ago. I was in my teens studying engineering, had an interest in homebrewing and started working in, in beer for a beer importer, uh, doing merchandising and, and promotions and tastings and um, really just got a bug for it, really wanted to learn about how beer was made, started homebrewing to kind of arm myself with more information and it was, it was very much a slippery slope from there. I've worked in various aspects of the beer industry from um, retail, wholesale, um, homebrew, education, tastings, dinners, hospitality. And eventually brewing, so I started brewing professionally about six years ago over in Perth and um, made the trek over to Victoria, I guess, to facilitate my enthusiasm for hospitality with beer and how the two interact. It's been a blast. The last couple of roles being Boneyard Brewing, before I joined the Three Ravens team about three years ago. I still do um, some homebrew work with Grain and grape, but yeah, predominantly Three Ravens is is where I'm at now. I've been here for three years. I started as as brewer on the tools and doing new product development and moved into the head brewer role about two months ago. And how are things going at Three Ravens? Yeah, great. Yeah, it's been a it's been a bit of a whirlwind. We've we've changed so much in the last 3 years. Raven started very small as a just a hobby really in the garage of an engineering company brewing, you know, 5 keg or 5 cask batches of traditional European styles. They'd never really intended for it to be a big business. It was just a bit of fun in a in an industry that was very small and very young at that time. I think there was probably only a handful of brewers in Victoria, some of the big established brands now like Goat and uh, Holgate and Grand Ridge. So back then it was a very different landscape and uh, uh, just just making some traditional European beers was was quite interesting and quite exciting. But obviously things have changed a whole lot since then. The the brewery's grown, capacity expanded about nine years ago into a a much bigger brewery from 300 litres to 1500 litre batches. And um, about three years ago, we expanded our fermentation capacity, tripled our tank space, which is still not a huge amount of space for us. And we also switched from bottle conditioning to force carbonating to increase our turnaround and, and really work with the space that we've got. So, yeah, a lot has changed even in the last few years since I've been here. We've been maintaining and tweaking the core range as well as introducing more seasonal beers and one-offs and, and really entertaining my fascination with both hops and barrels and, and bacteria and wild yeast, which is great. It's, it's really nice to have someone as welcoming and encouraging as Three Ravens are to allow me to, to really um, do all the stuff that I love doing. Is the brand mainly distributed still within Melbourne? Um, To a degree, yeah. We historically have been very focused on the local market, which is good and bad. It allows us to engage with our consumers a lot more readily, but Victoria has become such a competitive market, particularly in the last couple of years. It's really where everyone wants to be. And Victoria in itself has always had a, a very unique approach to beer in that in hospitality, everyone wants to have a different offering. So they don't want to be pouring what their their neighbor's pouring. They want to have something completely different, which is it's, it's quite unique, I think, compared to a lot of other beer markets where venues aren't necessarily going to support their local brewer. They want something different. So that's, I think that's always been a challenge for us to try and, try and get local support in a market which wants something different. We've recently moved into um, Queensland and New South Wales. Again, we have we've done a bit in and out of markets over the years partnering with mash Brewing allowed us to sell a bit of our beer over in WA and really sort of capitalise on my relationships over there and, and my mates and where I grew up. But yeah, Queensland's been a big one for us this year. Partnering with Calibre and Rickard's been been awesome for us. Good mate and really good at what he does. And um, yeah, Red Flowers up in Sydney's been been helping us move some beer this year, which is really nice. It's uh, Yeah, definitely helping us um, make the most of our capacity and share the beer around.
2: Brendan, I was lucky enough to discover Three Ravens very early on in the piece by one of those, you know, freakish accidents of happenstance, where my wife was actually on a plane coming back from Sydney and got chatting. Oh, my husband likes beer. Oh, that's interesting. I'm about to start up a new brewery, and it was uh, it was one of, yeah one of the original founders, and I think it was uh, at the time. I think they might have just engaged Marcus Cox, who's now over at Thunder Road to be the the first brewer there. And um, so I thought, oh, I've heard about this joint. I'll I'll check it out, and absolutely fell in love with the early beers. As I say, the the English. Brown, I think it was called. You had a, a white came along. Yeah, bronze. And, bronze, I think they called it in the early days. Yeah. That's the one. Um, and number. they were, yeah, all, all kind of, yeah, colour-coded. And I thought, well, that, that can't last too long because <laughs> gonna, you're, you're going to run out of options there. I think probably if you jump fast forward to now, the biggest change, I think, and I think the one of the best things for Three Ravens as a brand is the Thornbury Lager. And Matt and I, again, discovered this when we uh, were recording an episode of Radio Brews News with Mick Bannenberg. Out at the Palace Hotel in South Melbourne, we thought, oh, we'll just we'll start off with this Thornbury Lager, and it was an absolute cracker. But when I think back to, I guess you know that, that kind of subconscious picture of what Three Ravens should be, it was a, a one eighty degree turnaround. It is, yeah, to a degree,
1: it's a bit of a departure from that tradition European ale and bottle conditioned kind of thing that they had. But having said that, there were some um, some lagers brewed in the early days. Dave Bruff, who was here. In between, I think Ben and Marcus um, did some Hellas lagers and some Oktoberfest and some Box. I think Marcus might have brewed a few lagers as well. So it's not a massive departure from the the history of Ravens brewing traditional beer styles, but certainly that Australian take on pilsner and you know force carbonated bright beer is uh, yeah somewhat of a departure. But it's something that I think is important to to stay relevant and it's something I'm incredibly passionate about, as I'm sure you are too, Pete. A good pilsner is a very um, valuable beer in the in the market, and it's something that needs to be fresh in my Experience like pilsners shouldn't be transported all around the world. It's something I've been wanting to do since a very long time ago. When I was with Boneyard, or even before that, Josie Bones, I'd, I'd seen so many great Kiwi pilsners, and was asked by uh, Shane from from Steam Why this was the Australian National Beer Awards Why no Australian brewers were making Australian pilsners, and I, I couldn't give him a good answer. You know, it was really confusing. There's so many great Australian hop varieties now, and we we love drinking lager. We're very much a, a, a lager country. I thought it was a very good question. So. Um, yeah, I brewed one with Ridge Road a very long time ago with their bar series and just continued working on that concept and that recipe and was finally able to, to kind of start brewing one commercially with Three Ravens. And it was a good opportunity for us to, to tell a different story and to explore a different brand and a different way of presenting the Three Ravens brand and reminding people where we are. And, and again, like, like, as I mentioned, engaging with that local market where people want a good lager and, you know, a, a sessionable option. Our Golden had been our kind of biggest selling draft beer, our alt beer, uh, for those that don't know know the Golden. Cool style, but not particularly popular or uh, marketable. So we kind of switched the focus to the Pilsner, which was, to me, had more provenance and more story. And it um, was just more unique. As much as I love brewing traditional European beers, I'd, I'd much rather help reposition us as a company to have a unique position and an Australian position, something local. And, you know, so many people I meet didn't know, because we started so small, didn't know where through Ravens were. So to, to have a, a brand where we could tell our story, remind people where we are, you know, embrace some great things about Melbourne and some local produce was, yeah, too good an opportunity to refuse. But yeah, I appreciate that you like it. It's been a work in progress. I think we're up to batch 24, in tank now, so yeah, been quietly plugging away at it and refining it, trying to find the right hops uh, for that beer style.
0: I gather that you've used quite a few of the HPA proprietary varieties in that beer.
1: Yeah, yeah, we have. They've got some incredible um, diversity in their in their hops now. Galaxy, I guess, was the first to lead the way into the, the new school of, of Australian hops, and they've obviously built on that. But it's been it's been um, interesting to trying to find hops that were both uniquely Australian but didn't taste like a, an IPA or a pale ale. So they've had some, some very traditional, as, as OJ mentioned, the uh, I guess substitute hops, which they were you know growing uh, representations of European varieties. and interesting to say that they're moving away from those because they're the ones that I immediately was drawn to um, developing this recipe, looking for some stuff that kind of harked back to traditional hop characteristics, but were also uniquely Australian. And um, yeah, a few of the varieties that I've kind of grown to love are on the chopping board. So yeah, this, this beer is going to continue to evolve. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that I find some a you know, way to transition to a, to a beer that still tastes like a pilsner, but has, you know, unique Australian hops. The ones that I was immediately drawn to um, early on were Enigma because of its, it's it's so unique and I think works really well with lager yeast character. Unfortunately, we hadn't been able to get that for the last couple of crops due to high demand and the weather conditions they had last year. So the, the early additions were summer. Ella and 035, uh, which was also discussed. Unfortunately, we didn't didn't have the same experience with 035 in 2016 as we did in 2015, so kind of moved away from that now and have, have brought Enigma in just in the last few weeks. Uh, the one that I'm most sad about is Summer. I do have a, a very soft spot for that, hop, particularly in the last couple of years. It's, it's really come into its own in flavour, but what I love about it is it's low alpha-acid, and uh, bitterness profile it's really being a derivative of starts it's really it's a great way to provide a bitterness that tastes like a, a pilsner that tastes like a proper traditional czech or german pilsner and i haven't yet found another australian hop that does that i think the the high alpha acid high oil varieties are brilliant for flavor and for beers that are very bitter and aggressive. But yeah, still hoping to find something. This is the last year that we're going to be able to use summer as our bittering variety. But I'm hoping that in the next 12 months or with some of the newer varieties, I can find something to transition to that, that still tastes like a pilsner bitterness rather than an IPA or a pale ale or, you know, kiwi pilsners.
2: Brendan, while we're talking about hops, that's probably a good segue into the reason that we got you on today, which was last week speaking to OJ, we, a bit of a throwaway line kind of thing of, you know, a mango yoghurt. Um, <laughs> uh, character uh, in, yep. in in certain hops, which reminded me that one of my best and worst experiences at Gab's this year at Melbourne uh, was yep. the Mango Lassie. And not because it was a bad beer, but because I didn't actually get to taste what it was supposed to be. And just by way of uh, explanation for our listeners, my gorgeous volunteers, and, and God love them, it'd be very hard to do Craft College without them, sent them off with growlers to go and get these numbered beers. Yours was uh, beer number two, and um, they came back, yep, got it all and, and labelled it correctly and had it stored in the fridge. We went to pour it just before um, Murray came up to present uh, and talk about the beer. And um thought, geez, this is poor and very light. This is a very interesting looking beer. It turns out, long story short, they'd got cider number two, it <laughs> for them rather than beer number two we thought no no worries look you know we've got time run down and fill it up with the beer came back it's all sold out so paul murray had to sit there and the topic was the rise and rise of ipa so we had ipa beer nerd like proper full-on um you know hop heads and uh, murray sat there very meekly explaining what this beer that they would have had would have tasted like and the groans were, were, it was just, it was just, it was so sad. So <laughs> mate, tell I'm us. I'm
1: devastated, devastated <laughs> that I couldn't be there. Um, I was hosting a homebrew symposium at Arts, but I am really lucky and happy that I got to relive that experience. Uh, Ross Lewis actually recorded that and um, posted it on, on the SIP a few weeks ago. So if anyone wants to relive that that magical
2: experience. Of it is the, a good listen, cider, cider And like before anyone does listen weekend, to it. Yeah, and just by way of uh, you know a mere culpa, I hope I wasn't out of line with that crack about the cider. Um, just to, for those people who might listen to that and think that I don't like cider, I think we I don't. Argue, man. Yeah, it was a fun
1: beer. Yeah, I do wish that OJ had of, uh, you know pursued that. Uh, maybe they still will. That that cultivar that had the mango yogurt like characteristics. Yeah, it's nice to hear that they are moving away from the you know keeping hops the same, no difference to interesting varieties, because that's what's going to give us a providence in Australia to to create unique products, which is something that. Only a few breweries have really started to do recently. But yeah, it was a a fun beer. It was um, embracing some techniques that I've been exploring and and some stuff that I've really enjoyed lately from a number of different angles. Yeah, the souring bacteria was one that I discovered doing a, a presentation for the Australian National Homebrew Conference last year. I wanted to present different methods of souring and just to show that kettle souring isn't just a one note. Uh, process, as most people describe it, that there is diversity both in acid, in, in aroma and flavor and associated products. And one of the things that came out of that experiment and, and presentation was one particular strain of bacteria that had a very intense uh, kind of tropical fruit and mango-like character. So I really wanted to to employ that again. And um, yeah, this seemed like a, a fun opportunity as Gab's generally is and has been co-opted by brewers to experiment and play and, you know, trial new things. Yeah, so it was a fun exploration of both the bacteria that I wanted to work with and kind of uh, an extension of our, of our Juicy IPA. So for those that aren't familiar with it, it's a, a variation on a variation on a variation on a variation on IPA. Um, so it's our, our um, Juicy IPA is a New England style, which is, I guess, calling it a style is, is quite loose. It's a... Uh, a lot of people disagree that it is a style. And in America, it's been kind of nicknamed a milkshake beer. As a result of that, some brewers actually started making versions that emulated milkshakes with milk and fruit uh, or lactose and uh, fruit puree. So we adopted that. It was a fun, fun sort of process. It's, um, you know, I've been playing around with lactose and New England IPAs. So I thought this was a great opportunity to combine all of those things and do a, a sour version of a, of a milkshake IPA.
2: And for our listeners up north, you're doing a collaboration with Brew Haha next weekend.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I met Matt up there for Brews Vegas earlier in the year and, um,
2: yeah, immediately hit it
1: off. Yeah, had very similar philosophies. His IPAs were tasting awesome. Um, He also does a lot of kettle sours and and fruit beers, uh, being close to the Mullaney fruit processing plant. So, yeah, it seemed like a a fun opportunity. He'd been uh, wanting to brew with me and I'd been wanting to brew with him. And um, we we discussed a few things, but he's interested in the New England style. And I also kind of wanted to play with fruit in a New England IPA again. Our uh, our Juicy has a very breakfast juice-like vibe, so... We're kind of uh, working on a recipe at the moment, which has elements of breakfast juice added to it as well. So it'll be good fun. I think there might be still some tickets available if you hear this before the weekend and come down and join us for the brew day. If not, look out for it. If you're up in Queensland uh, a few weeks from now, I'm sure that won't be uh, too far off.
0: Uh, And the juices just come out in cans. Is that a beer that would have a pretty short shelf life
1: in package form? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The nature of the style, or particularly the way that, that most people brew it, is to suspend a lot of protein and polyphenol Um, And yeast in the beer, so it is pretty much all downhill from when it's packaged. The beer can turn quite grey and inherently it will precipitate. Like we work really hard to keep a permanent haze in that beer, employing a variety of techniques to to ensure that it does stay milky, both for stability and so that it pours consistently throughout kegs and that sort of thing. But yeah, I don't think it is going to last. Our last keg batch was about eight weeks, I think, our last keg that we poured at Beer Deluxe, and I was pleasantly surprised at how well it had held up. Not sure how the cans are going to go. We've got some retention here just to see how it evolves. I just want to ensure that we, we sell through. It might be a permanent line for us. We're still not sure that we're going to get the sales or the continued sales um, that we really need to ensure that it doesn't sit on shelves or in fridges or, you know, collect dust because that's kind of death for this style of beer. In my opinion, it needs to be drunk in the first kind of fortnight or month. But, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it does age. It might have a slightly longer shelf life than we've anticipated. The best before date printed on the cans in the first run was now. So uh, best before now. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, interested to see. We're doing a little bit more. Next week, we're going to do another another can run um, as we fell short to supply all the people that wanted some the first time around. But yeah, I think we're going to just play by ear and see how much demand there is, whether it is a passing interest in the Australian market or whether there will be sustained sales. I'm yet to see. But yeah, based on experience so far, I think people are buying six of them or twelve of them or a carton, which is really promising. You know, they're not just buying one can and moving on to something else, they're actually having a session on it or Yeah. I think that the first keg that we um that we tapped in October last year was great testament to the drinkability of this style and, and the broad appeal of this over other, other types of IPA because it is a lot more balanced and sessionable and, and not as aggressive. We tapped a keg at the Terminus Hotel, you know, Fitzroy North. And um, finished the keg in under three hours, which beat their previous record, which was for a keg that they gave away uh, for free. So that was, that was pretty cool. Good to see that it was um, drinkable and sessionable. And I was uh, accused later that week of putting something dangerous in the beer because everyone had monster hangovers. And uh, they're like, what did you put in that beer that gave me a hangover? Yeah, I
2: think it was the alcohol. I think it was because you drank eight <laughs> pints of it. But, it uh, was the quantity that you drank. Hey, Brennan, <laughs> taking your uh, your brewer's hat off just for a moment and getting into the debate at the moment uh, amongst beer fans, and it's, from my uh, reading of it, it's pretty much divided down the centre. New England IPA. Is it the ACDC of, <laughs> of, of IPAs and it's just going to keep going and just using the same three chords but longevity and, and uh, be held in, in reverence or is it Hanson? Is it going to be fondly remembered but <laughs> it's going to be over as quick as it starts?
1: Honestly, I, I don't know to tell you the truth, Pete. It has certainly been around for a long time in the US and continues to grow. I do I do appreciate that it is introducing different techniques and methods. Um, to me that's its its biggest draw card and appeal. It does embrace a lot of things that I love about beer and things that I like about IPA, like IPAs with lower bitterness and more flavour forward and aroma forward and texture I think is something that's been largely ignored in a lot of beers, introducing protein and, and things like that for mouthfeel and body. And the um, I guess the biotransformation aspect is definitely very interesting. And I, I hope that this current interest in the style does facilitate more understanding of the interaction of hops and, and yeast and, and yeah. other spices too. So, yeah, I'm not sure. It might. I uh, think um, certain examples think, might stick around.
2: Yeah, um, I think that's where the challenge lies because I think you, you talk about that biotransformation and um, Dave Padden put it beautifully in the, you know a good NEIPA really should it develops its haze as sort of a side effect of the process ticking all the boxes and getting all the, the stages of the process right whereas uh, we'll just add some flour to make it hazy it kind of muddies the waters pardon the pun yeah. but, uh, but i think it, it it risks devaluing the process that goes into in the same way that you know lagers are oh, you know they're cheap and nasty and so sort of, no, no no they're actually a, you know a testament to the skill of the brewer I think this is kind of the same yeah. but just risks i, I guess getting derailed I think you're right to a degree.
1: and I think it's, um, I think it was something that, that Ray might have said to you, James, a few weeks ago, that they don't need to be cloudy, that you can get the biotransformation without the haze. And and that is true that you can get the biotransformation, but it's kind of missing a lot of the other aspects of the style that are appealing and that do have value. I think the haze, as you're aware, you drink with your eyes. So that immediately has an impact on your experience with the beer. But also the, the other part of the, the, uh, you know, the New England style is to support hop oil in the beer with yeast and with protein and polyphenol, so. I think to, to devalue that or say that, it, that you can make a clear IPA, a New England IPA, kind of misses the point that the texture and the mouthfeel and the hop oil um, in suspension is also a large part of that beer. So I can see both. I can see both perspectives. I know that the Hop Nation down here have done a, a really good version, with sort of a halfway New England IPA that, that tastes awesome, that does have that slight haze and does embrace biotransformation. transformation. Yeah, so I think that beer will definitely continue to, to be brewed and sold. It seems to have found its way into um, a lot of people's hearts in, uh, in Victoria. But I guess the risk of continuing to brew one is its short shelf life. I think that the future will be if it does continue to brew different variations regularly to keep them fresh and so people know that it is a fresh example and hasn't been sitting on a shelf for six months.
0: Yep. And Prof, I just wanted to mention that you're obviously not aware that Hansen are actually currently on tour in this way. So they're, <laughs> they're obviously no less relevant 25 years later.
2: No, no. I'm very much aware, and and it's good to say too. I mean, they look far less like girls than they did when they were back then, and they um, they sounded fresh and clean and all that sort of thing. But it's it's kind of you know handsome light, or it's handsome version 2.0. So my hop, but yeah, there was a <laughs> hop beer, <here>, which didn't <laughs> yeah, didn't see it out here. No, <laughs> probably less said about that the better. <laughs> yeah.
0: And Brendan, actually you um you touched on it very briefly early on the partnership with MASH Brewing. So both companies uh, have the same owners, is that correct?
1: Uh, sort of. So we have three current owners. Uh, one of them is the director of Mash. Um, so there's there's some similar ownership. We do have some unique ownership as well. Uh, Fitzie, the the founder of Three Ravens, Peter Fitzgerald, is still a significant shareholder in our company. The other engineers that were involved have since moved on, and some of them have wanted to come back and may do in the future. So it's yeah, it's a it's a loose link. We did have the same director for a while. That's changed recently, but we still we still work together. We still brew most of the packaged mash out of Three Ravens for pretty much every other than western australia so we still still continue to have a, a strong relationship we're brewing a lot of copycat and indian ale predominantly as well as brewing uh the the whiz fizz or belinda my series out of our brewery here in victoria and they, they do the same thing they brew some uh, through ovens for us over in wa for the market over there yeah it's good i love having more brains involved and um charlie and i
2: brewed together a long time ago at gauge roads so it's nice to
1: yeah nice to have that link and that communication in a friendly kind of way
2: Nice also right. that we can get some um, beers from over there without them having to make that arduous trek across the Nullarbor. So well, yeah, that's, it, that's it, how the relationship it's re-embracing started. that local kind of thing, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think Mash had found that they, in the early days, they had a lot more interest in their beer um, on the eastern seaboard, I think partly due to the culture of West Australian pubs and the scene over there, but it was really difficult for them to ship their kegs um, over the Nullarbor and then get them back to refill them. So yeah, they'd been looking out for somewhere to brew fresh beer on the east coast. And at the same time, Peter was... Was looking for partners in the, the three ravens business to continue to do what he what he believed needed to be done in Thornbury. so it was um yeah it's good good arrangement they you know mash and uh, another partner came on to continue to keep us alive and growing and continue brewing beer fortunately they saw value in the three ravens brand and decided to keep that but yeah certainly we wouldn't be where we are without uh, mash in the current environment it's been a very strong aspect of our growth over
2: the last three years yeah, and I think too it says a lot about the evolution of Three Ravens in terms of uh, you know, early doors, I had some friends who were involved asked by Three Ravens for some marketing advice and that sort of thing, which was at the time, I guess, not ignored, but it was kind of dismissed as, well, uh, we're we kind of, you know, if we're making good enough beer, people will find us. And and like you said, back then when it was, you know, Holgate, Grand Ridge, and Mountain Goat and not much else, that was probably okay. But as the scene sort of blossomed, Three Ravens really needed to not quite reinvent themselves because I think what made three ravens special was what was going to take you into the future but just kind of streamlining and and i guess you know chamfering the the rough edges uh and and making it a little bit more accessible is certainly a a big reason that that the company sort of got to the stage where it is today yeah i think it's it's been interesting
1: trying to i guess deduce as the stories come and gone and i guess in the early days they knew what three ravens was about and then um you know as, as adrian mignolte was flying here almost solo for a few years he kind of had his perspective on the story and where it was going and the brand and did a really good job of embracing the dark kind of satanic uh, mood of the brand and we've continued to do
2: that yeah
1: (laughs) give him give him a chance yeah (laughs) but it's it's been really fun i'm I'm really passionate and interested in marketing and i've had lots of great opportunity to be involved particularly with the development of the starwood brand i think i learned a lot about marketing helping create that whiskey brand and and other brands as well but it's, it's fun trying to figure out what Three Ravens is, there was an incredible story that Ben, um, our original brewer, had written with a, a professor friend about the name Three Ravens and where it came from. I won't go into it because it's a, an epic novel, but it's about Odin and his two ravens and another raven, Loki's raven. And hearing that story a couple of years ago at the Beer Awards dinner with Ben, it was really fascinating. It was really an incredible story um, that we're still trying to figure out how we tell and how we embrace that and celebrate it. So the Wild Ravens range was kind of our first re-emergence of that story for those that haven't seen the wild ravens range the label is a i think a pretty cool die-cut image and illustration by mate brendan of odin with his three ravens so it's kind of the beginning of us trying to figure out how we tell that story and uh, we have been on the hunt for a a marketing intern for the last six to nine months haven't really found the right one yet but um we're planning to in stages kind of refine and retell and figure out how we best utilize the assets that we have and also modernize and make them more relevant so things like the wild ravens and um, Thornbury Lager and the Juicy RPA have been um, kind of opportunities for us to to explore and the Three Ravens brand and where it is and where it's going. And same with Little Ravens, our one-off series. It's slowly evolving. We don't want to lose things that people love about the brand, we're also wary that in order to stay relevant, we need something a bit more modern and something that actually tells a story rather than just having a, a different
2: style of beer or a you know a black or yeah. A, yeah. a bronze or a, a blonde. And uh, in terms of a creative resource, can you tell us a little bit about the brewery? Is it the co co space upstairs? Co brewery, yeah, yes, I'm sitting, at it, sitting at it now. Um, this was
1: uh, an engineering firm before um, before it was Three Ravens, uh, Zecton. Um, they did a lot of high end work for pharmaceutical industry. So they had about a hundred staff at the time. Very big office space, quite dry. And uh, as far as engineering firms go, I think they are pretty eclectic. They seem to have a lot of interesting characters up here. But yeah, they moved out. I think about 10 years ago, they sold the engineering firm and moved on to start other companies and go into other work. And we had this space that was pretty much empty carpeted, walled office space where Ben would come and practice with his punk covers band every Tuesday night. And other than that, it was really empty. And uh, part of the reason that the former owners moved on was the site, the building. It's, you know, it's obviously, it's a pretty big site and has a lot of value. And they, um, they wanted to sell up and move on, but Fitzy wanted to keep it going. So he needed to find someone that was both willing to join the brewery, but also help take on the massive site that we occupy. So as a, as a result of that, we had to figure out how we best utilize and you know capitalize on on the site that we have. So we stripped it out, got rid of all the partitions and the low ceilings and the carpet and kind of modernized it a bit and opened it up as a shared workspace for creatives and really anyone that's interested. So yeah, it's been fun having other people around. Kiralee, who I know you're quite good friends with, she rents a space up here. We've got a coffee roaster who installed a roaster in our bar, which is great because I'm also a mad keen amateur coffee roaster. So to be able to geek out with someone who's similarly interested and passionate about coffee is really cool. But you've got all, all kinds of people renting up here, from um, engineers to importers, film producers, cleaners, all kinds of things. So it's really fun. It's great to have people around. You know, it got a bit lonely here in the early days. Just such a massive site, you know, quite cavernous at times and just a couple of people here but it's nice to have people around and to bounce ideas around and yeah just to have some company it's it's pretty great and brendan there's a few new wild ravens beers on the way there are yeah so we launched probably about a year ago now with a series of red ales a um an old brown ale an old red ale and a a plum red ale and very shortly after started putting down some base work for other styles of beer yeah so we got the next releases are coming up pretty soon the second base was a golden base, just a very light, light base beer with some oats and rye, a lightly kettle soured fermented with an English yeast, and then aged in barrels with our mixed culture. And mixed culture has developed quite a bit since those early ones from, you know, old bottles of homebrew of mine to commercial cultures to things off fruit. Yeah, it's really fun to have started with quite simple kettle sours and belgian Weiss to, to move to, to Flanders Reds to much more complex mixed fermentation beers now. And so the next four will be coming out throughout July and August. We're currently still working on a, a launch schedule involving some um, some pretty cool restaurants here in Melbourne and some bars just to kind of celebrate these next four releases. Three of them are based on, or two of them are based on a golden sour beer um, that's been re-aged on uh, grapes. So we got some some fresh Riesling pomace from a winery up in the, the Yarra Valley and then aged some barrel-aged beer on those grapes, re-fermented and then bottle conditioned. We did a, a Pinot Noir version again, with some fruit from the Yarra Valley, from a different producer. I'm really, really excited about those two in particular. They're they're something I've been really passionate about for a long time. And I think, again, going back to that provenance and position thing, it's something that we've got a great opportunity to in Australia to market, not just here, and, and, and celebrate beer in our local market and help wine drinkers understand the value of beer, but also in terms of regional provenance and marketability. It's something that we have got such a great opportunity to do. One of the beers kind of came out of a relationship that we've got with Tivoli Road Bakery. Um, My sister's a a sourdough baker, and the owner of Tivoli Road is a a massive beer drinker and loves Three Ravens. He's not massive in size, just massive in enthusiasm. And so they've made bread with our brewing ingredients and malt for a long time, and I thought it was about time we incorporated some of their culture into our our brewery. And we had some wort that wasn't going to fit in a fermenter. We were doing some kettle souring and had a good yield, and we had about 400 litres of wort that was otherwise going to go down the drain. So rather than tipping it out, we put it into some wine barrels and pitched a sourdough culture into it to see what would happen. Um, So really embraced the the yeast from the sourdough to ferment the beer. And there was every chance that it was going to turn to vinegar or, you know, to socks or feet and go down the drain. But surprisingly, it turned out really well, quite clean, really interesting fruit character. Uh, So that's coming out shortly, the sourdough ale. And the last of the four releases is a collaboration we did with the Commons Brewery from Portland during Good Beer Week, a very dry, light uh, Saison. Sort of loosely inspired by their flagship beer, the Urban Farmhouse Ale, but then with a, a portion of our barrel-aged golden sour blended into that. Uh, so four really, really interesting beers. We will be doing a preview up in uh, Brisbane, preview tasting, pre-release. I'm at Sakura at Bar. If you have time to get along to that, that'd be cool if you hear this uh, in time. Otherwise, look out for them in uh, kind of July, August and onwards. Yeah, really, it's yeah, so much fun. It's probably the, the most excitement I get out of brewing is the complexity of mixed fermentation beers. Fantastic.
2: Well, Brendan, before we let you go, I suppose we should allow you the opportunity to give the business a quick plug in terms of trade or um, who might be listening. They can contact with yourselves at the brewery or a distributor.
1: Yeah, yeah, they can. You can hit us up on our social media, all of the, the usual avenues. We do a cellar door at the brewery that's open from Thursday through to Sunday. So you can come down and see us from 3 o'clock on Thursday and Friday or from midday on the weekends. We do brewery tours, so you can um, join us for a masterclass or a tour or just uh, come down and get some takeaways. We are planning some really fun events through the brewery over the next few months, including more juicy IPA fresh from the cellar, as well as some other tastings and dinners. So, yeah, follow us on socials if you, if you are keen to get involved, join up for our newsletter, or just come and see us down at the bar.
2: Beautifully done. Well, on that note, Brendan O'Sullivan from Three Ravens Brewery, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News, Beer as a Conversation. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, James. I hope we get to do it again soon. Thanks, Brendan. Don't no worry. Now, James, before we head off, in something of a bonus for our listeners, we've also got a second interview that you recorded a little while ago. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, when I was over in Washington, D.C. for the Craft Brewers Conference, I caught up with Michael Corrigan, who's National Sales Director for the New Belgium Brewing Company, and just had a bit of a chat about the beer market over there, how New Belgium's been finding it, and some of the interesting products that they've got coming up over the next few months. So it was a really good chat, and I hope you enjoy it. Michael, thanks very much for joining us on Radio
3: Brews News. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, James.
0: We've seen a real influx of American craft beer brands in Australia over the last even six months, um, and you only have to look at good beer week program to see the number of breweries that are coming out.
3: What do you think is driving that? Uh, I, I really believe that there's a, there's a strong demand um, uh, for American craft beer around the world, and, and, the, and the world is just getting to be a flatter place. Uh, there's more and more consumers that are, that are becoming aware of of what American craft beer is and what makes it unique, and... Um, I think consumers, um, especially in Australia and, and many other countries around the world, are are, are seeking um, those those interesting flavors that are coming out of out of the United States craft beer business.
0: Is it also partly to do with some of the factors we've seen this
3: morning that it's a pretty tough market at home as well? Absolutely. I think there's um, uh, it is a crowded market. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I think because of that, because of the competition, the, the everybody's game has been has been raised and and. Um, there's, there's better brews coming out from, uh, from more brewers that, that have higher quality and, and better consistency than they've ever had. You had a very successful launch last year of the product
0: Citradelic. What do you think it was about that particular fruit IPA that hit all
3: the right notes for consumers? Um, I'm glad you mentioned it. Citredale was our—it our, uh, was the number one craft beer launch in, in 2016, um, and I and I honestly think that that beer hit the consumer's palate. What they were looking for was that everybody was seeking that fruited IPA. The point of difference that we have with with Citadelic Tangerine, I truly believe, is that we use real fruit juice. Many others use—they so call all natural ingredients—or but it, but it's it's a facade. It's uh, many of them are using um, you know ingredients that are basically developed in a lab, not grown on a tree. So I think that's the real point of difference, and I think consumers can. Take Taste it. Does that come with a price? Is it a premium price point for that reason as well? Is it a more expensive way of making the beer? Absolutely. Unfortunately, I think as we find out that when you do things the right way, they cost more. Um, and, and you know, when you source raw ingredients and raw materials from from farmers, and you have to you know to get the beer and to get the flavor, the taste that you want, um, it's it's much cheaper to to develop it in a lab. Uh, but you're not going to get that same real true fruit flavor that you would get out of out of a real plant.
0: Yesterday I um, interviewed Randy Mosher and we were talking about some of the evolutions of beer styles in America even in the last 10 years since he wrote the first edition of his book Tasting Beer. One of those was talking about how the amber ale has changed and become a more of a redder, hoppier beer than what it was. Fat Tyre was probably you know, one of the pioneers in that space. Where does that evolution to sort of more hoppy, styles of Amber Ale. Where, where's that left Fat Tire? Is it still is it still been a successful beer for you in recent years?
3: Yeah, Fat Tire is and, and has always been our flagship beer. It's um, it's dwindled as a percentage of our sales, but that's also been by design. Fat Tire is now roughly, it's about 45% of our total total company sales, brewery sales. And over time, Fat Tire has done extremely well um, in many markets. But but as you pointed out, I mean, the, the consumer has been looking more for um, hoppier portfolio, or um, taste profile. We haven't changed the uh, the recipe for Fat Tire, but but we've absolutely seen more more ambers introducing more hops into it to get more of a pale ale flavor out, out of their ambers. But Fat Tire's continue to perform for us and um, we're, we're gonna continue to stick with it. We're just now entering into um, our first ever brand extension with Fat Tire, which we just announced about a week ago. We'll be launching our uh, Fat Tire Belgian White on July 31st, so we're excited about that. But we also feel that when speaking and thinking about Fat Tire, it was initially, the concept was after a Belgian style ale. Um, it was initially initially modeled after brands like Deconic or Palm. Um, so it was a Belgian style ale, and we're kind of going back to that. It was really, um, so it was originally a Belgian ale, and then we recategorized it actually as an amber. So I think like anything else, beers' profiles and styles kind of morph as the consumer's palates change over time and, and what they're actually looking for. So that's why you're maybe seeing a little bit more red in colors and, and hops in flavor on, on, in your ambers.
0: Is it a risky move
3: doing the brand extension for Fat Tire? Uh, I I guess you could say it's a risky move, um, but I also think it's um, it's a foregone conclusion. When we were looking at, we, we've we've been talking internally for for probably five years, um, and, and and talking with our distributor council members, if we should ever do a, a brand extension off a of Fat Tire. And when when we're thinking about it, that it was a natural fit. That again, going back to Fat Tires, a Belgian style ale, we thought. You know, basically, we, we, we kind of brought Belgian beers to the map in the United States in 1991. Um, the Great American Beer Festival didn't even have a Belgian-style category when we first entered Fat Tire Amber Ale in, into the competition, or Fat Tire uh, Belgian-style ale. We actually changed, the, you know, eventually morphed it into an amber so that it could get judged at the Great American Beer Festival. So, going from a, a Belgian-style ale to now a Belgian white, it just seems like a natural fit. And it's um, we're, we're extremely happy about it. It's, uh, the, it's the best liquid that we've ever tested with consumers and, and beer drinkers alike so they um so so far we're, we're we're anxiously awaiting that its launch but yes is it a risky move i don't know if it's risky or if it's just being bold and stepping and being willing to step out and, and believe and stand behind a brand and we saw some data this
0: morning that showed that there is growth in some of these sessionable styles i can't remember if Belgian white was one of them but you're obviously confident that that's something that consumers are going to be looking for
3: yeah, I think that there's no um, there, there's no hidden secret that, you know, Belgian white is a huge style. Blue Moon in and of itself is the largest craft beer brand in the United States. So it's highly sought after, but they, they are absolutely the elephant in the room and the biggest brand. We're, we're not targeting that brand by any means. We just know that that consumer, it's a very easy, drinking, sessionable style. So um, there's more than enough consumers for, for many craft brands. There's many other great brewers out there that are pretty, out know, great Belgian whites like Allagash and, and Avery. There's many other great whites out there. So we believe that You know, Fat Tire Belgian style white should be, or Belgian white should be an absolute home run because there is a consumer that, one, trusts New Belgium and knows Fat Tire, and we're gonna put out a fantastic product. So we're super super excited to have that beer on the shelves um, later this summer.
0: Is it served with a Big slice of orange in the glass.
3: You know, we're going to put um, a hint of oranges on the front packaging, so you will see uh, you will see a fat tire bicycle, but it would be aimed in a different direction. But in the back basket, you'll see a basket full of oranges. So, uh, we will encourage consumers to absolutely use a wedge of an orange to enhance the flavors because it um, it really does complement the flavors of a Belgian white. Sure
0: and um, what about for the Australian market specifically was it a difficult conversation with Gary about what brands you were going to introduce in the first or what beers you were going to introduce in the first instance?
3: Um, it definitely wasn't a, uh, a difficult conversation whatsoever. More than anything, it was just um, it was a good conversation about what styles were working in Australia, what, what styles were dominant. It seemed like obviously the, uh, the pale ale was clearly the, the home run style winner in Australia. So we took that into consideration, but we also took into consideration what, what styles were not really there or overcrowded. And so um, we tested, we seeded some brands like 1554, which is, you know, it's an enlightened black ale. We, uh, we've, we've called it lager. We've used a lager yeast. And so we've, we've kind of played around with that beer but it's a it's a fantastic beer that we that we seeded so that brand citadelic and now our voodoo ipa um, which is just done absolutely fantastic for us here in the u.s we, we have um, extremely high hopes for for it to be able to grow as well in that crowded space of ipas both here in the u.s and and uh, over in australia as well
0: how's australia performing i know it's early days yet but how have the initial sales been
3: uh, so far, so good. We're um, we're cautiously optimistic that in our international expansions. We've been going uh, pretty slow at it yet, but um, we but we really wanted to find the right partners, and I think that's what it all comes down to. Is is finding the the right partners that get our brands that know that we don't want to go too far and too wide in distribution it's all about quality and making sure that that our beer is getting to the Australian market with clean fresh cold dates cold beer um, cold shipped across the seas it costs quite a bit more money as you can imagine shipping a case of beer just across the United States is is pretty expensive but putting it on a boat and then sending it in a few thousand miles across the Pacific is uh, is even more costly so to ensure its quality is is absolute number one to us to never compromise and we are extremely happy with our partners um, in Australia with Square Keg that, you know, Gary and his team have done an absolute fantastic job about seeding our brands in the right spots in both on- and off-premise retailers around the Australian market.
0: And I do know that some of the retailers were commenting on how fresh the IPAs were when they arrived in Australia around Christmas time.
3: Well, um, yeah, th- thank you for that. Although it, we'd love to get the beer there as fast as we possibly can. I mean, uh, realistically, it takes four to six weeks, but we do everything we possibly can at the brewery to make sure that everything, every beer that we put into, into its vessel, be it a can or a bottle, and, and hopefully one day a keg, we can get down into Australia. We want to make sure it's, it's as fresh as we possibly can make it so to get that true hop flavor that, uh, that those consumers are really looking for.
0: So we're going to see you down in Australia. What's the upcoming promotional schedule?
3: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, my schedule is uh, is a freaking train wreck, so um, just to put it lightly, I, I, I would love to say I could get back down to Australia. I um, I absolutely loved the time that I was there a few months back, early in December of, uh, of 2016, and, and I spent some time with Gary in a few of the markets, and um, I truly enjoyed not only getting to see what beers were down there, but what the craft beer drinkers were enjoying, what was happening with the local scene. So I'd very much like to get back down there. I, can't, I don't know if I can commit to anything right now, but I'll certainly, um, you know, we we want to make sure that we that we have a consistent presence and somebody coming down from New Belgium from time to time to make sure that we put a face to our brand and that people get to kinda of get to know us and who we are and, and the real culture that we have at New Belgium.
0: Great. And one of the trends that I've really noticed since I've been here and everyone's been talking about is the phenomenon of the, the hazy IPA. Even IPAs that aren't labeled as hazy or New England have just they look like orange juice or something like that. Is that an area that you guys have played in or are you sticking to your guns with the more traditional styles of IPA?
3: Uh, it's a great question. It, it's certainly a hot style, and, and we, we've seen it along the East Coast for a while now. It's um, that, that hazy IPA, is or New England-style IPA, as you put it. Um, it's certainly on fire right now, and um, we have dabbled in it. Um, we actually have a brand out there right now called Juicy Mandarina IPA. It's underneath the Voodoo franchise, and it plays in that same space. It definitely looks like a, um, a cloudy orange juice, if you will. But, um, and it's, They're fantastic products, and those consumers are going to continue to seek them. So if, if that's what the beer drinker wants, I don't think that it's anything that we're going to shy away from but I don't think it's anything that's on our radar per se for anything in the near future for a launch. It's also about, though, ensuring that you can provide a stable product, I suppose,
0: with beers like that, which they're opening themselves up to potential issues.
3: Yeah, there's no question. It's, um, I, I think, as, as as you're very well aware, but New Belgium believes 100% in, uh, and we'll continue to invest in ensuring that our quality and consistency is paramount to the beer. And and, and that's really what it comes all down to. And so and I do think that that style of beer specifically, it lends itself to, you know, potential issues or concerns. And, and that's, I think it's getting passed through because I think it, it's sought after maybe just because of the visual effects of that cloudy, that haziness that, that they're seeing in an IPA. So, but to your point, it's um, it certainly could be cause for concern if, if you're not being very careful with the brewing process. I
0: think we've only seen packaged beer in Australia to date. Is there any plans to introduce draft
3: beer? Um, no official plans as of yet. It's absolutely something that we would like to do. We firmly believe that if we're really going to build our brand in the Australian markets, we're, we're going to need to have a presence in the on-premise. And, and as you know, draft beers is really the way to do that. But we need to make sure if we're going to do that, that the beer is fresh, it's cold, and, it, and it's the way we want it to be hitting the beer drinker's lips. Because it, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, it is all about that experience. And if it takes too long or if the kegs are sitting outside of a cooler and the beer is just not, not the right flavor profile, that's the worst thing we can do for our brand is, let a beer drinker taste a new Belgian product that's not as good as it could be or was meant to be. Well Michael
0: Corrigan I better let you get back to your train wreck of a schedule so thanks very much for joining us on Radio Brews News.
3: Absolutely thanks for having me James appreciate it.
1: In the garden,
0: garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack Australia's number one craft contract brewer.